Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts. Anything we need to know before we start? No, I pretty much covered it with the pants off comment. <laughs> I just want to make sure that was caught on on tape, just in case I ever run for office later. No, I, I take that back. I am a fine role model for all people and should be emulated to the best of your ability. What's this about fascism? <laughs> Subjectively the best. Okay, so are we good now? We're good. All right. For take two, hello and welcome to podcast episode 337. I'm the me and team, and I'm joined by regular co-hosts, Canis Albinus. Someday, they'll make it so that you can get from one side of the world to the other without flying 200 hours. Makalua, and Mega Bears fan. <laughs> I am definitely not muted. Alright, Makalua. Maybe if they did the version of a Hyperloop type of thing that went vertical, you could fly faster? I don't know. I know, bring the Concorde back. And I think the first topic is mine, isn't it? It is. All right. So, modders of Civilization VI rejoice. There is now a world builder, or maybe the world builder was there all along, and they just recently turned it on. <laughs> recently, Firaxis <laughs> released a YouTube video with a stream of them playing around with the new world builder and giving some tutorials on how to do certain things in it. I actually have not watched the entire stream. I just saw bits and pieces of it and read about it online, and then promptly booted the world builder up in game to see how it works myself all you have to do is just change like one flag in the .ini file and then boot up the game because it's actually in the game this time not in the mod tools like it was with civ 5 this uh, is unfortunately... the simple world builder you're talking about oh yeah yeah are there like two versions now is that what there's it is the there is the simple world builder which is in the main game and then there's the advanced world builder which is in the mod tools i think when i was in the simple world builder in the main game there was like a button that lets you toggle it to the advanced world builder is that still yet a separate thing uh i don't know i've never tried it maybe i am wrong but that's what i thought they said on the stream yeah there was a button that said advanced mode and i clicked on it and then there was like a big dialogue prompt thingy saying like this is still in testing or whatever it might not be entirely stable and then i was like okay let me see what this can do so maybe there's like an even more super advanced mode in the mod tools but it's nice that it's in game so that's cool it's not as easy to use as civ 4s where you just hit what was it control w yeah, yeah. and uh, you can change everything about the entire game mid game there was a, a two minute video before it, this was released that was talking about the basic world builder and the number one thing of advice he that dennis shirk who did it the number one thing he said was don't make your river circular you will have a bad time is that like <sighs> just break the whole world or something apparently it causes problems that's interesting <laughs> But I wanted to make a moat. Yeah, a truly protected city. Like, I still just have to use coastline for that and suffer the consequences of being coastal. <laughs> the boom boom from the frigates. Yeah. And the flood flood from the ocean. Well, not if you put the city on a hill. Then you just might not have any tiles you can mark. Your city itself <laughs> will probably be okay. You'll literally create Atlantis inadvertently. Yeah, there's your moat. <laughs> the ocean. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what you were going for, right? Actually, that would be extremely difficult to take. Without, like, naval stuff. You would never take that with land units. 
I think the implicit thing this live stream was talking about, specifically that it's still in development, was that, hey, because it's still in development, there's still patches coming. Which I know there were a lot of people that were afraid there weren't going to be any more patches. And while I do know that being pushed into a pit in the Tomb of Giants is not a great thing, patches are good. Mm. I, I, I thought that was a rather amusing moment, personally. It was, but it was still annoying. Well, and especially if you had already played Demon Souls and like you could see that coming from a mile away. Yeah, but you still let it happen because it's awesome. Oh, yeah, you just want to see what happens. So it's like, yeah, push me down that pit. Yeah. So anyway, I did not watch the full stream, so I don't know if any of you did, if there's anything else in there that is worth talking about. I didn't get a chance to because I was busy dealing with other issues that popped up, but it looks like it's fairly robust in terms of features. And then at the very end, they briefly open up the Advanced World Builder, and it looks like there's things like, in this picture, I'm seeing small brush, medium brush, large brush, and all the different textures and all this stuff and yeah i uh, played around with it for like 10 or 15 minutes after the announcement and it it does look like it is pretty robust and full featured about on par with what was available in civ 5 more or less and the good news is you can choose where your natural wonders are so we can finally see those natural wonders that we never see spawn mm. i forget which ones those were there was the rainbow mountains that nobody had ever seen or something yeah, I think I've only seen those in a screenshot of something. I've never had them generate in a game. They were in the patch notes as one of the two of them had not appeared, did not appear randomly for some reason. Weird. Huh. What was the other one? I want to say it was, I don't know. I can look it up because Civ Fanatics has the patch notes posted in sticky thread. And then you click on it and it's like, oh, wait, this is a resource. So you got to click on the extra link. Anyway, go on to the next topic. I'll tell you what they are later. Yay. Oh, wait. I have to introduce it. Crap. <laughs> no, wait. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, I was going to say. Okay, so the next topic. Has Civilization VI become 3,000 times more difficult? 3,000 times harder than before. This is a thread by Horizons, King of the Ring, with the happy cat emoticon. It says... On King level, I'm getting absolutely hammered with waves of enemy units and barely keep up with AI tech. Bless you. The AI is clearly receiving some enormous boosts from this patch. Do I need to reevaluate all the strategies that I've developed since when Civ 6 was released? Or blah, 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 Okay. So apparently they come to the conclusion, or the first post says the AI did improve. And I think that is fairly true uh, and it's technically correct but i have on at least a couple of occasions gotten owned in medieval wars because the aggressor had pikemen and i still had classical units because of a lack of iron but i don't know if that's necessarily an ai improvement or just a consequence of the new strategic resource system and did you so, make like a serious effort in those games going for crossbows rather than resource dependent units i had not no yeah i would imagine like if you do that you're not gonna die in medieval war yeah it was a but surprise if you don't war, then you could so, die yeah i had not been focusing on military because i had peaceful relations and trade routes with everyone and then all of a sudden hungary decided yeah no your stuff belongs to me and i was like oh okay well Whatever. Yeah, like, I saw he had pikemen, and I, I just, I was I didn't feel threatened, because they were pikemen. But then, <laughs> I was like, oh, crap, those are pikemen. 
<laughs> you don't normally respect those, but yeah, yeah. I guess if you're like a full hour behind, they can matter. Yeah, and if you haven't built walls everywhere, they can hit a city pretty hard. Yeah, they, they sure can. He did not need any siege weapons at all, and he was he was punishing my cities uh, pretty thoroughly. But I think 3,000 times more difficult might be a, a little tiny bit hyperbolic. I think that's how it always goes. Well, that was to get everybody's attention and go, hey, this is difficult. But it, it is noted, I think original poster said it, and I think a couple other may have. It's also playing peaceful is harder. Yeah, it says gonna, the AI seems to be a lot more aggressive early. Somebody's going to have to get smacked down. I don't feel like that's on. new, but yeah. Maybe but it is on real difficulties. Because like, like, even early on, like even before the first expansion on duty, the AI would attack you pretty fast. I think making the AIs a lot more aggressive, especially early, would be pretty much necessary considering that they removed the warmonger mechanic so there's no reason to not be aggressive now well you have some pretty big negatives to diplo like if even for warmongering and such right so it's not like there's no negative it's just well not... you get the grievances with the the one sieve that you're picking on and maybe with their friends or allies but they're they're temporary and i, I feel like it's a lot easier to work around grievances than it was the permanent you are now a warmonger forever because you conquered mm. one sieve thing yeah i guess i could just kill everything anyway so it doesn't feel different but yeah you're probably right like like i am That's noticing true. that I'm, I'm not having those frustrating situations where another ai declares a surprise war on me and then i actually like turn the tables and capture a couple of their cities and their capital and now suddenly i'm a warmonger for the rest of the game because I fought and won a defensive war. I'm not seeing those sorts of things happen anymore. And that's really nice. Yeah. The two missing natural wonders were the Zangyi Dangsaya and the Mount Rayam Raimara. Raimara? Raimara? R-O-R-A-I-M-A. I don't know how to pronounce that. I, <laughs> yeah, I, butcher, I butcher relatively easy pronunciations. So I would call it Rorima now that I'm not stammering over myself. Oh, good enough for me. I'm not going to say it's accurate, because I don't know. But doesn't have to be accurate, it just has to be passable. Depends who you ask. Well, it depends who you ask how, uh, whether it's passable. Well, I'm not going to be mad if somebody calls the Great Lakes the Groot Lukes, or, so... <laughs> Groot. Groot? And uh, anyway, to answer the question, I, I do not feel like Civ Six is, in general, too difficult. <clears throat> It is winnable on every difficulty by uh, most, well, by at least some players. Well, I think the actual topic isn't that the game is too difficult. It's just that is it more difficult? Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying because of the way the thread is titled, like the, the first thing that comes to mind is just no, it isn't. Yeah. But like you could make a case, and some people try to make a case for some games. I don't usually agree with it because games are made for people to beat them, so and they generally get a substantial portion of people who do. But some do games feel- are a lot harder. <laughs> I do feel like a lot of the newer mechanics and tweaks to the rules, like in particular the strategic resource mechanics, do require you to play the game a little bit better than you may be used to, or at least it more harshly punishes you for playing poorly. Is so that things really... that you maybe could have gotten away with in previous versions of the game, you can't so much get away with now. Because like, like I mentioned earlier, just getting stomped by pikemen is something that never happened to me before because A, no one ever built pikemen. And I don't, I don't know if they got buffed or got stronger or what the deal was. But anyway, it was easy enough to have one source of iron, right? And once you have that one source of iron, you upgrade all of your warriors to swordsmen and then to all your chariots to knights. But you can't do that now, right? So you have to be more aggressive about making sure you get those resources. Sources. And if you're not doing that, then you are going to be at a handicap when the AI does inevitably declare war on you and you still have archers and warriors or, you know, crossbowmen and they're rolling on you with knights and pikes and 
musketmen or whatever. Although keep in mind, if you're resource sparse, you can go black marketeer for Magnus and play the encampment game a little bit, and it's still going to slow you down a bit. But you can definitely get stuff out. True, but you have and, to. I mean, you have to start that a long time ahead because that's like one of Magnus's last promotions, right? It's one of his last yeah. tiers. So you would have to. Yeah, you have to recognize you don't have iron, but by medieval, you, right. you probably yeah. could if you're attacking decently. Yeah, I think by the medieval era, you could definitely have that promotion. But if you took like any other governor, right, or you took the different path for his promotions, then, you know, maybe you don't have enough governor promotions available to get to there when you need it. But you probably know you're, you're low on iron or don't have iron before that. And if you don't have iron, I would just go crossbows. You don't really have a choice. Crossbows kind of and pikes. feel like if you don't know that you don't have iron in time, then you're not playing right. Because I would figure that bronze working is kind of an important tech to get pretty early. Yeah, I feel like it's much more important now uh, than it used to be. <clears throat> yeah, yeah you, you could previously let it slack off just a little bit and maybe prioritize something else. Like if you wanted to prior- if you were on a coastal start and you wanted to prioritize sailing, you could do that. But the whole sailing ship building that thing. But now you can't. And you can still hold with archery. For sure, early didn't, on. Didn't they move where iron was revealed? Didn't it used to be revealed on mining? Uh, no, I think it was always bronze working. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was they, always they, 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 You used to always be able to see horses. That was Yeah, different. they they made it so that I think you now need animal husbandry to see That's horses. what it was, okay. Which is kind of silly, but whatever. It's not a big deal. <laughs> what is I'm this assuming big thing running around? Oh no, it's I'm a horse. Ass- <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that because you're not eating horses that until you actually learn how to domesticate them and ride them, you just don't think that would be a valuable resource. And then you're like, oh, wait, we could ride these things. And now it's like, oh, let's go find them. But conversely, we can see elephants before that because their horns are pretty. Yeah, I mean, they're a luxury. (laughs) Internal consistency was never important. It's fine. Right. Yeah, we we, we don't care about the smaller speedy things, but look at those big things. Ooh. They're definitely a lot more noticeable. (laughs) Yes. Disclaimer, Polycast does not approve the theft of ivory from any animal that no. grows it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely not. Trading in whales and salt. And, you know, and also one of the things that's made the game more difficult is all the global warming stuff later. Because if you're not prepared for that to start building those levee type things, uh, the flood barrier. I would like to point out that while this is more difficult in a vacuum, if you do understand the mechanics... I find it hard to believe that the AI will understand the mechanics with an equal degree of capability. And that could, once you're familiar with them, make the game easier rather than harder. Is The AI is not going to plan ahead. Oh, I'm short on iron. Maybe I should build a, an extra encampment and promote Magnus up so I can build an army in time. Like, the, the AI doesn't make that kind of plan. So Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's my hang up with this post is that the post seems to be that the AI has gotten better and that that made the game harder. And I'm just not seeing the AI playing that much better. It's the the rules have changed, like I said, that I feel more strictly punish bad play and give the AI some advantages because, you know, all the AI handicaps mean the AI doesn't play badly in that way. But I don't feel like the AI is using its units better or building a better composition of armies or better city placement. Like, I haven't seen those sorts of things that would be indicative to me of better AI play. I just feel like, yeah, if if I'm not playing well, I'm getting punished for it, which is good. I like that. Then again, we did have that that turn or that polycast topic about the AI not using watches properly, and then the very next week we had a turncast player get wrecked by watches. So yeah, yeah, it's like it's learned that they've managed to figure out workarounds for the AI to learn how to use certain things. But then when you get to some of the newer mechanics like the global warming, the AI is basically drowning itself because it just wants to keep producing all the units and put. Because we noticed this in a couple of other games that the AI was building like coal plants or 
even oil plants in every city, when if you build one, the power output could cover a couple of cities within six hexes. You know, whereas a human would selectively place like a coal plant or even the nuclear plant to power two or three cities, they would just spam it out to all the cities and then spam the global warming. And this is where you have these games where they've let the AI run on by itself, you know, an all AI game and half the planet's drowned. Yeah, I think they just have the flavor for production and that's all they look at. And then they're just like, oh, build a power plant. There's no consequences here. Yeah. So maybe one of the funny things is they finally got the AIs to use their rise and fall mechanics correctly. So now we just have to wait for the third expansion <laughs> so the AI can learn how to use the gathering storm mechanics. Or a heck of a lot of patches for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. But then again, AI programming is hard. So having stuck my nose into the world of trying to program an AI, it is pretty difficult. Yeah. I mean, some people will tell you it's not that hard, but those are people who do machine learning in the military. So yeah, and have access to like supercomputers and stuff and 20 years of experience doing it. If you're a genius, it probably is relatively easier. Speaking of, uh, no, I don't have anything. Let's just go. Speaking of quality of victory. Yeah, that's what we'll be speaking of. And that is the title of the thread, Judging Quality of Victory. Uh, Green Oak asks, uh, just throwing this one out there, but why is number of turns by far the most common metric to use when judging quality of victory? And what about something like score? Um, now, this is an interesting question because, at least in the Civ 4 Hall of Fame days, both uh, turn count and score were separately tracked that way for quality of victory. They had different categories for them. They would go by turn count and then they would have score. But unfortunately, ever since Civ 4, the way Civ has ca- calculated score as, as a metric has been a pretty bad indicator indicator of how you're doing and is kind of janky to try to optimize for like it's not really like it was even questionably predictive of winning in the civ 4 days but it was much more predictive than it has been ever since so it's never been a great metric although like uh, players like wasted time put a lot of uh, effort into optimizing it in civ 4 and got some incredible results enormous scores (laughs) like 10 times what you would get from winning on deity he would get so there was some definite quality of play there and you needed to be a good player to get it but turn count is not perfect because uh, it doesn't track reliability and as been pointed out sometimes in the thread some people will do risky things in order to get a faster turn count that's always been a problem since this stuff started being competed yeah uh, someone would like just re-roll for lucky huts or re-roll for a good start or roll until they got lucky and then play that out because it's such an advantage uh, from the early game to have those types of things. But it's it's probably still the best metric we have to compete on in an otherwise imperfect game when it comes to competitive design. So that's so you're, you're kind of stuck with it in terms of evaluating quality of play. I like the very first comment in the first and uh, the second uh, post. Because EP. Because EP. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. But yeah, I mean, if you want, if you want to have a metric to compare, uh, like how well people are playing between games, it, it's kind of like you don't have a lot of good ways of doing it. Turn counts one of your better options, even though like starting with Gilgamesh and Warcart rushing a couple people out versus like starting with England on the coast in isolation. Like even if you play significantly better in the second one, you're probably not going to have as smooth of a curve. But whatever. Well, I mean, there's only so much you can do. All these game victories are victims of the survivor bias i mean you never report the 25 games you lost well that's true as well although a lot of times once people are like actually competitive for hall of fame they're not losing a lot they're just giving up uh, when they know they're not going to get a competitive time because like, counts as a loss cough cough there's also the well, question not of, really you're just leaving the game you can come back and beat it there's also the question of whether or not uh, it's accounting for save scumming oh that's true oh, that which, was uh, definitely single player is another far, thing that you would do 
Yeah, and so in single player, that would be another way to, you know, potentially reduce your uh, turn count because you can just, you can experiment and then just save scum. Well, that didn't work, so reload. It's good for learning, but yeah, you'd get banned for that in so far if you tried to submit uh, save scum games in the Hall of Fame because they had a mod that tracked that sort of thing. Oh, did they? Yeah, session yeah. three ended. Session 450 started. Huh. I wonder how that happened. Well, yeah, that's, I don't know. that's allowed as long as you don't reload a previous turn. You could stop as often as you wanted, but they need a pretty good metric for that. That's not just like it's still banned in the newer games, but I don't think the enforcement of it is quite as strong. As far as I know, there aren't even any Hall of Fame games in Civ Six. Yeah. Something about the infrastructure not being in, available yet, like the SDK for dealing with that kind of information is hidden. I could probably find that out pretty quickly because there is a Civ Six Hall of Fame thread. Yeah, you know, Hall of Fame discussion. The last post was last month, two months ago. There's no yeah, save game cool. parser. As people point out, there's no like scaling for score, so you you would just play a huge map on Civ Six and get a bunch of cities and wonders and crap, whatever counts towards it. I don't even remember what counts towards score anymore. One thing that that I thought about when Rise and Fall first came out was the possibility of substituting er- cumulative era score for like the regular score, and if that would actually be a better metric of how well you were playing. Even then, is it really predictive? Probably like not. If we're going to bother making a score ranking, I would like it to be predictive of how strong the Civ actually is in-game and how likely that Civ is to win. Like, those things should correlate. It shouldn't yeah, be. because there's some of the inspiration-type things you could pick, or dedications you can pick, where you could farm the era score really hard if you wanted. And that's yeah. not a reflection of how well you were doing in the game. And especially things like Barbarians, because every time you take a Barbarian uh-huh. encampment, you get era score so you can definitely farm stuff like that it was just something that i thought about when it first came out because i was also thinking about things like oh could era score be an actual direct path to victory could there be an era score victory in this game where you get a certain threshold of accumulated era score and you win that would be hard to do well yeah that, that's yeah, what i thought sure too, that, is that would be hard to do well why well because reasons i don't know <laughs> because like <laughs> It's it's the same problem with all the other what I like to call pseudo victory conditions. It's only it's only a partial troll to do that to call them that. Because ultimately, if you die, you lose, and that's always on the table until someone actually achieves a victory condition. Which means if you conquer everybody, but like one person's remaining capital and just pillage it, you can win any difficult, you can win any victory condition you want, uh, except for religion if you didn't found one. So you can make a case that religion is maybe slightly harder, and that's it. Like otherwise, military dominates. It still dominates. In Gathering Storm. Like, there's, there's nothing that changes that reality. So if someone's leading an error score, it prompts a dog pile. And again, if it's otherwise not predictive of victory, how are your opponents counterplaying it? It's just going to be attacking you. It's... It would be like you're either you're cutting your quality of play otherwise to try to pursue this victory, which would be really odd because you, you kind of want your Civ in the Golden Era in, from a historical perspective. Or everybody is just making victory progress towards this victory just by playing normally because you're trying to play well. I, I just don't see how it fits in as a victory condition. So one of those sounds interesting on paper, but when you think about how you're going to implement that and what that means, it's kind of like, eh, maybe not. It's just hard to, when you have a game that requires people to be alive, to win suddenly killing them becomes a viable option that becomes overpowering yeah because all the other victory conditions if they require you to do a certain thing while alive you can just 
easily destroy them by <laughs> not letting them live. Yeah, that while alive is a pretty uh, significant constraint, yes. I don't know if there's a way to deal with that in a way that currently exists in the framework of games. Yeah, I mean, hypothetically, you could maybe have some system where, you know, even an eliminated civilization's culture continues to be influential. You know, so kind of like all throughout medieval Europe, the culture of Rome was still highly influential. And then you could have some mechanic where maybe that could trigger a culture victory for a civ that's been eliminated hypothetically that sounds the, the like problem that. is if you've been eliminated you're still dead like yeah but no, you still built there, the most influential culture in the history of the world even though you're no longer around to you know enjoy it uh, is that going to count for a victory though that's kind of i'm just saying that hypothetically <laughs> that's a hypothetical that, that's tough to like what? actually put in a game though is what i'm getting yeah at. it would be <laughs> I was going to say, if I'm the most influential culture in the classical era and I get booted out of the game, how's that going to help me win it in the end? And how's that really more influential than the legacy of your previous, like, if somebody had culture from medieval on, how come theirs isn't the most influential? Yeah, considering yeah, consider- they're still around. Considering your, your production of all those things starts spiking the further on in the game you go as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, it would be a completely different game. I'm just saying that's a hypothetical that i could think of off the top of my head i'm not saying it's a good idea <laughs> it's an it's interesting idea. it's not a bad idea the problem yeah, is I, it's how would you implement it in a way that gives the person who has died a way to remain in the game such that like there would have to be some form of leadership that is not on the government level yeah like some some sort of a like a papal state situation where you may not be in charge of a large kingdom but you are in charge of a large culture right and that would be a massive complication of the civ formula such that EU4 in its current state would look simple. There was an old DOS game based on The Prince, uh, the book, that had it, that did this decently. And it was very different from Civ because you were playing in Venice as one of the patricians there. But you could get yourself voted Pope by bribing enough cardinals, or you could become the Doge. And, but you were, and then you were expected to do stuff. But you could, there was only one victory condition, and that was to have the highest score accumulated by the time the game ended. So all these things you could do would contribute to your score, but it's not like you could completely remove a patrician. So they, they would just suck until the end of the game if you were really dominating them and you were both the Pope and the Doge and, and lots of other stuff too. But also you, you got points for conquering other cities and forcing trade open, or you could keep it for yourself to get, to get money to do the bribes and such. But then you wouldn't get as much contribution towards score, but you would have a crushing trade advantage if you were the only one who had open ports in that city. So that's the way you could go and say it. So the problem is, how do you square with the military conquest? It comes back to that, because, you know, for whatever they want to say, it's always been a dominant piece of uh, the civic experience. Yeah, the other hypothetical that I could maybe come up with to address that would be maybe if you're conquered, you become the leader of like some kind of underground resistance movement and actually have an opportunity to overthrow the civ that conquered you and, you know, liberate yourself. <laughs> you are the but rebels. But again, that's that's again, that's an entirely like different game. Yeah, you'd have to make it not civ anymore. It'd have to be something right. else. But that's that's another hypothetical game design that I could imagine. That would be basically a Crusader Kings style thing. Yeah. Except without the dynasties. Because in that situation, you could be, oh, well, I'm a, re- I'm a rebel movement. And then above that, you could have, oh, well, I'm a state within the empire. And then you're the empire or the kingdom and then the empire on top of that. And you just think, hmm, how many layers do you want to go before you decide it's too much? And EU and Crusader Kings can get away with doing stuff like that because the games are narrower in scope. So trying to expand that out to cover the entire, you know, all of recorded human history would be even more yeah. complicated it doesn't work than so 
doing it well. for one time period. We've seen yeah, lots of I'm just thinking about the feudal contract at like 4000 BC or now. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Now we've had one of Dan's old favorites come back. A top 10 list. Two of them, this, actually. Yeah. This was Asperus the Science, top 10 sciences and Gathering Storm. Post the past, and he's revised it as well a little bit. So he had gotten inspired from user C. Cowan Genus post back in Rise and Fall, where he made top 10 list for the victory type. So he decided he tried himself. Let me see. I'm trying to figure out. Should I start at, should I start at 10 and go back up? That would probably be the best plan. Anyway, the first one, the number 10 one, was Aztecs last and newest entry on the list they can use builder charges to rush districts you know especially especially since the cost of districts increases eras progress they can build campuses and spaceports quicker than any, any other civ in the game and you pair this with the ancestral hall and any new city you found gets a builder so you can just like rush the district really fast that eagle warrior also being incredibly strong get more cities more quickly and then you're getting more builders but anytime you defeat an enemy unit, so here, let's build some more districts, let's build some more campuses. And, and that, that should not be discounted. The the fast start available to the Aztec it allows you to snowball from there. Like it, it gives you a huge turn advantage. 10 might even be too low, I don't know. But it's, <laughs> it's certainly very good. The Aztecs are just very good all around, regardless yeah. of what victory you're going for. They've got huge combat bonuses. They build any districts. So, you know, whether it's commercial hub or theater square, whatever victory you're going for, you can build that district more quickly and in more cities. And get the benefits from it much faster, especially as you increase the number of districts. Because newer cities have weaker production. They just don't care. They have it from their chops. My one complaint, though, with the Aztecs is the, the randomness of the capturing enemy units. This reminds me a lot of the barbarian capturing ability of the Germans in Civ Five, where you would get gold and the unit or whatever. And I really wish that they had made it so that just every time you, you captured the barbarians, you got one or the other. One of the issues with the Aztecs is you can't rely on getting those free builders because it is random whether you get them or not. So you'll have some games where you just have bad dice rolls and you kill a bunch of units and you just don't get any builders or not enough to do what you want to do. So that's the one big hang up with them. Yeah, even then they're amazing. Yeah, and they also get the two extra amenities with each luxury. So you can have bigger cities and have more people working in them and spread more and go wider and wider and wider. You know, you, you can snowball their science quite easily. And it's fun to get rushed by them on high difficulties. Is this the Dwarf Fortress definition of fun? Yes, it is the Dwarf Fortress definition Okay, double fun. exclamation points around the whole thing, gotcha. Yes. The me and team has begun to act strangely. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, only begun? Just now? <laughs> well, relative to the usual. It's my baseline, not normal people baseline. Well, you were uh, wearing uh, pants when the call started. Yeah, that is, that's, yeah, that's yeah, very Yeah, that is unusual. What's with the pants, yeah. Uh, all right, number nine was Japan. <laughs> he said be prepared that Japan was going to be in a lot of these these lists, he goes. But he's saying that they're the one that easily one of the most versatile ones. What provides their science adjacency? Because thanks to the Meiji Restoration, you can rack up some ridiculous adjacencies in the game later from districts. Government plazas and city centers count, too. The downside of that is... It's harder to get the adjacency on the campus because you've got that compromise between trying to put a up against rainforest or mountains and then trying to build around it. So 
you're going to have to think that one out. And you're also, he was pointing out, you also have to pack your cities close together to get the most out of this. The samurai domination win because they always fight at full health. You can take the cities and, you know, more cities, more science. They're more of a jack of, despite being good, they're more of a jack of all trades as, as opposed to specifically science, he's saying. I mean, but... If that you want to focus science, you can do it easily and try to use that adjacency. It's always nice to be able to put all, make all of your tiles adjacent districts, because then you kind of don't even need tiles or tile improvements, except for resources. And I would even yeah. say that uh, science might be one of the weaker ones for Japan because of the fact that you would have to chop all of those rainforests in order to build other districts to get the adjacencies. Yeah, that's why getting the campus one is the harder one. You could probably get a couple more districts adjacent to it without, like, like say if you built it into a little C shape of mountains, you might have two slots in front of it for putting two more districts to up its adjacency. But if you wanted to try to surround it, there's no way you'd have a very plain campus district. And I don't know the numbers to whether the adjacency bonus of like, if you put the campus right next to your city and then surrounded it with all your other districts, if that would still work. Well, is the, is I, don't, I haven't played as Japan yet. So I don't know. Is the bonus one plus one per adjacent district? Cause if so, that's better than the plus one half that you get from rainforest. So it would be better to chop the rainforest and build districts than to leave the rainforests. Civilization.wikia.com. Yep. Yep. Districts gain plus one bonus of their resource per adjacent district instead of plus one half. So Aren't yeah, you? that would be better than surrounding the campus with rainforests. I think the rainforest adjacency is you just get plus one for every two rainforests. Is the mountain plus one flat or plus still plus half? The, the mountain is plus one, so it's better to put it next to mountains and then surround it with districts than it would be to put it next to a mountain and surround it with rainforest. Okay, so you could get two or three mountain tiles and still get a good bonus to that adjacency, and then the rest of the district's going to be the other half of the circle around it. Right. You Plus, just would want to make sure that you that if you are going to have rainforest adjacent to it, you have an even number of rainforest adjacent, because I don't think it gives you the credit for the half point so yeah. it's, it's not plus one half it's actually i think the way it's actually implemented is it's plus one for every two rainforests yeah i think I, i'm one not half, sure though plus one half rounded down yeah so if you only have one rainforest next to your campus i don't think you get anything like it's not even something where it's like every other turn you get plus one it's just rounded it's, down to zero yeah. it's rounded to oblivion yes so two rainforests or bust, or in the case of Japan, a district. In the case of Japan, all your districts and maybe a couple of mountains if you got space in the right map. Speaking of mountains. Yeah, the Inca, which has been a lot of people's favorite cities as of late. A mountain start by ensures that no matter what, you're going to get some places that with decent adjacencies for campuses. And with the terrace farm and bonus to food production, they can make really tall cities. So somebody posted from a while ago, unfortunately I didn't link, where somebody got an Inca city to over 60 plus population. And yeah, imagine that with the rationalism civic, which gives you that plus extra science per the population. And you put Pingala in the same city and it's just like, would be absolutely ridiculous. You know, and the fact that they can work the mountain tiles because it makes settling easier and... That, that's about it for the Inca on that. But that's well, I would also need. add. I would also add that the fact that the Inca have that early tunnel equivalent, the road, that mountain road or whatever it's—I uh -huh. can't remember what it's called. I, I think it's some weird word that I can't pronounce. But they've got that mountain road thing that's the equivalent of the tunnels, which means that even if you do spawn like right along like a massive range of mountains, you can still get through it. So from the military and conquest standpoint. It's not going to block your units, which is a huge advantage to have early in the game because your cities are protected, but you can still get out and go after the other players without having to spend 20 turns 
walking around the mountain range. And that should not be understated because Civ 6 really does like to generate long, snaky mountain ranges on a lot of its map types. And they can be a real pain to have to navigate early in the game because you just can't go through them at all. Which I really do wish that Civ 6 had like a mountain pass tile that would appear in some of those ranges that actually would be passable. Or maybe something like the Civ 5 Carthage unit where you lose 50 hit points if you end your turn on it. Oh, like as an extra tile and during the terrain generation when it's doing the mountains. Yeah, just to throw a yeah. couple of those in those large ranges just so that it's possible to get through even if it's risky. Because, yeah, a lot of games where I've played a lot of games where just the mountains are annoyingly long ranges. It's like, ugh, you know, I got to walk. And with one unit per tile, you know, there's just so much of the micromanagement with the moving units. Like, no, please don't put so many obstacles on the map. Some games you get the Andes and you can sort of navigate around. Some days, uh, some games you get the Himalaya. <laughs> yeah, but with the Inca, you just ignore all that. What mountains? Yeah, it's it's really nice. I've, the couple of games I've played with the Inca, I've been like, oh, this is amazing. I love this ability. So the name of this road tunnel is... Q H A P A Q N tilde A N, which I'm going to pronounce as Caphack Nan, which I'm sure is wrong, but I'm American. <laughs> yeah, I, I do not know how to pronounce Incan words. That's I for do sure. not I do not know <laughs> anything about pre-Columbian Amer uh, pre-Columbian American languages. So right, and I'm not even going to pretend to. I'm just going to tell you that it means Andean road system. Yep, so as, as long as you can get one builder over to the other side of those mountains, you can build that tunnel thing through it. And now it's as if there are no mountains. Well, it's also like there's teleporters. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, too. So, again, if you've got that massive mountain range, you can actually move a unit from, like, the one end of the mountain range to the other end of the mountain range. Not across the mountain range, but, like, imagine moving from, what's the southern end of the, the Rockies? Is that in, does that go all the way down to, like, Arizona? I don't think it does, right? Well, um, the, the mountain range goes all the way down to the end of the, an, an, end of the Andes. Oh, is that technically? Okay, cool. Like, but it's not really the Rocky Mountains, because the Rocky Mountains are technically a line of mountains that exist at the very start of the Western Mountains in the U.S., but the Rocky Mountains in general represent the entire Western Mountain thing, which goes all the way from Alaska to Patagonia. So Right, but uh, again, the point is that the way that the tunnels work in Civ Six, they're like a teleporter. You can go straight from, like, Arizona to you know, the Northwest Territories in Canada in one turn. You would be able to go from Mount McKinley or Denali, depending on what your political stance is, all the way down to Santiago de Chile. In one turn. In one turn. <laughs> Screw because, airplanes. <laughs> because reasons. And it used to be you could do it with boats, but not anymore. Oh, did they patch that out? They okay. did patch that out. Yeah. So no, no more 20-tile-long canals? No more 20-tile-long no. mountains that you can sail battleships over unfortunate no imagining the guys picking up the boat on their shoulders and going whoop 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 all the way through the mountain pass oh, i people... just assumed that it was a ton that the boat just sailed through it it was like a, like a tunnel of love at a amusement park the boat just sails oh yeah sails underneath. <laughs> a battleship yeah <laughs> doing that it's amazing yeah. i think people don't realize just how big a world war ii era battleship really was uh, that's yeah. what makes it awesome the yeah, picture. they're huge <laughs> sailing that, that thing sailing under water in a mountain in a tunnel of love <laughs> well and like an aircraft carrier is like a whole city on the sea I mean yeah. I was gonna say even massive. the battleship is big enough to have had its own tunnel of love built inside the hall so yeah there was a there the city close to where I live had is like a hundred and twenty six thousand people it has two buildings over the over 20 stories 
and somebody suggested back when they were retiring the last battleships from the where they were getting ready to scrap them that they wanted to have them sailed up the river to where my city is and somebody said are you insane do you realize how big that would be it would be taller than the buildings in the city you'd basically be a battleship with a small town if you did this not to mention the fact that more people too not to mention the fact that you'd try you'd be trying to sail a battleship up the freaking saint lawrence seaway and down the niagara canal it's like no not gonna happen I don't think you can even do that with a Liberty ship. They are big boats. And you like them and you cannot lie? Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I blame Dragon Age for giving me that kind of a reference. Anyway, uh, number seven, uh, Germany. And the reason for that is protection. Because Germany laughs at other universities. Measly protection. They don't get a straight-up bonus to science, but a combination of Hanses and trade routes when paired with commercial hubs. They can effectively make productive cities in places other can't. More cities are then able to build the space ports and do the space projects. And that extra district slot for every city ensures they'll get cities up and running a lot faster, especially with the Hansa. And the bonus against city-states is they can get a lot of cities faster. This, this is why, in-game, we probably always see Germany being one of the ones that just loves to overrun everybody. But that production bonus is just huge. It says there have been several posts on the subreddit showing this and how quickly and efficiently they can build everything they need for science when they take that number seven slot. Even if their science isn't the greatest, once they get there, they could pop out the spaceship parts very fast. Well, and you don't have to choose between commercial hub or campus you can right. plop both as soon as you found your city i mean you still got to build them so you got to choose which to build first but you don't have to wait to get to the population threshold to build the other one yeah you can get the ball rolling a lot earlier right just... you lock in the cost too by plopping them yes so they're not you don't just switch eras and suddenly have it cost a lot more and things like that, that that is still the way it works in gathering storm right you still lock in mm-hmm. the cost of a district when you place it even though they added the queue i do not know if that is true but i, I have not specifically heard that that is not true yeah i've been assuming that it's still true so until i hear otherwise i'm still playing as if it is yeah germany is one of those things that you don't want to see on the enemy on your enemies list because they can just bury you with all kinds of stuff their units might be slightly behind but if they bury them with a ton of it or it's later in the game and they're burying you with armies and cores of it uh yeah you're in trouble who wins one tank or 50 cursors Exactly. And so far, I think all the sieves we've gone for are just very good all-around sieves. I think now we're going to start to get into the sieves that more specialize in science. I don't know. Number six is the Netherlands. (laughs) Yeah, he says it's a new entry on the list after having some people comment to me about their effectiveness and... He says, you know what's good for science wins? Science and production. With the Grot Rivieren. Thank you. <laughs> uh, they rarely have any issues getting either a good campus or a good industrial zone thanks to stability. And all that you need is those districts to be placed on a river to get that plus two adjacency with the potential of more items if there's wood, rainforest, or mountains nearby. You know, so you could have a campus that's on a river but by some mountains and, you know, it's a much better campus. He said that thanks to the recent patch, climate change slowed down to pace the Netherlands command, even if their districts are rivers at risk, they are they have a fifty percent off production towards the flood barriers and dams. So you can, you know, not worry so much that your districts are on a river or in easy floodable places. And polders, despite the specific location requirement, is good. It has a very good source of gold, food and house which helps your cities grow taller, but also get to that economy where you can just start purchasing things outright, you know, whether that's military or infrastructure. So once you put down the district in a later city, you can just go boom, 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 campus, you know, uh, library, university, uh, research lab, boom, it's all done. One of the important things about polders is that you can build them on lakes. A lot of people forget that you can do that. 
and most lakes are only like three or four tiles anyway. So if you have a lake in your empire, you can probably build a polar on every one of the tiles in the lake. And then if you can combine that with the Huey Tea kit, I can't pronounce that either. The, the, the lake, I call it. I the call lake it the pyramid. Huey yeah, I, I can never remember how to pronounce it. But if you I combine that with it. the lake pyramid, you buff all those tiles too and get amenity from them. So I don't think I've actually played as the Netherlands since I won a game as them last expansion. I remember them being fun. Very map dependent, though. Well, that's Civ Six. Yeah, and this is like with Germany. Once they've got all that, they get all that production. So once they get to the space racer, they can also just both either both produce it or buy straight out parts and things like that. So now maybe we get into the science of I don't know. Number five is Scotland, and he he hadn't thought much until he actually tried them. And he's saying essentially what they do is turn your civ happiness into science and production generation. So if you can get your cities happy, they get plus one great scientist points in the campus and plus one great engineer point in your industrial zones. If the city He's ecstatic. It goes to plus two. So they. Uh, this is why science. This is why part of it because Scotland can just run off a bunch of great scientists. You cash those in for either the Eurekas or the straight up science points, and suddenly you're much further ahead. They also get plus five science in happy cities and plus ten in ecstatic cities. So that's quite a boost. I think it's a little harder to get the ecstatic because you're going to have to have a lot of amenities to make that happen. You're probably going to want to stay friendly with at least several civs so you can trade for and buy those luxuries, at least on single player. Multiplayer, they might not be as willing to sell you stuff. Well, depending on your type of multiplayer. Also, uh, one that. of the other things that's very helpful for Scotland is there's those World Congress proposals that allow you to get extra amenity from duplicates. So if you've got mm. that one clustered resource, like you've got like four marble or whatever in your city, you definitely want to go for those World Congress resolutions when they come up because that'll give you a pretty sizable boost to science. Also golf courses. They give you lots of amenities. Yep. Build those. I, I think those were pretty restrictive to build, though. So you just build one per city is the thing. Yeah. And I think they did they have to be adjacent to entertainment complexes or they just got a bonus for being adjacent to an entertainment complex. I think they might have to be adjacent. But if you're Scotland, you're going to want entertainment complexes anyway. Well, the thing that was frustrated that I found, I don't know if they fixed this, is that the golf courses do not get their bonuses from water parks, which in almost all cases are interchangeable with entertainment complexes. I think so. That if was you're fixed, a, but I'm going to if check. you're a coast. Scotland, you you would yeah you would want to double check. But if you're a coastal Scotland, you're going to need to go with entertainment complexes instead of the water parks because you may not get the bonuses from the golf courses. Yeah, I don't know if they ever patched that, or maybe it was by design. I don't know. If an adjacent <laughs> to an entertainment complex, but that only has to do with plus one culture. Okay, so it's not a requirement to build it. It's just yeah. you, if you build it next to a water park, you're missing out on one culture. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah, and that, that wasn't here the mentioning that. Uh, the other thing that wasn't mentioned was the plus 100 production for 10 turns after declaring a war of liberation. And it's tricky because it's reliant on events happening outside of your control, but you can activate it. And then just like Australia, similar to ability, you know, if you do this at a point where you're trying to build spaceship parts, suddenly those spaceship parts just got a lot cheaper. I had played several games as Scotland in order to write a strategy guide for them on my blog, and I was never once able to trigger the uh, bonus from the War of Liberation. The requirements for it are just so obnoxiously strict. The biggest yeah. one is that I, th- I think the civilization still has to be in the game. So, like, if you're the suzerain of a city-state and an AI conquers that city-state, because that city-state is technically no longer in the game, it's not a War of Liberation. I was gonna... I, I see. I was thinking it was simpler. I thought that would count. 
I, I wow. tested it, and at the time that I tested it, that was not the case. So the only way to get a War of Liberation is you had to have been... I, I don't remember if it works for friends or if it has to be an uh, actual ally, but it would have to be another civ, right? Because city-states are just off the board because they only ever have one city. I guess unless, hypothetically, they conquer a second city. Can city-states still they, do that in Civ Six? They can uh, conquer it, but they have a tendency to just straight up raise. Yeah, they, they raise them or they don't keep them or they just lose them a couple turns later anyway. But so basically, in order to get the War of Liberation, you would have to do it against another full civ civilization that has multiple cities and some of those cities were captured and then you would liberate those cities if the aggressor wipes out all of your ally cities it's not a war of liberation anymore and that was the biggest hang-up that i had with using that that casus belli was the obvious ones would have been city states i thought for sure i'd be able to just spam it for city states and it just didn't work and i was like oh that sucks city states are protectorate wars yeah you have to do a protectorate war before they're conquered yeah also the only restriction on the golf course is cannot be built on desert or desert hills okay and one per city and one per city and tile cannot be swapped i'm pretty sure there's some ones on desert and desert hills in arizona yeah but it's arizona (laughs) not that there's anything wrong with arizona but it's very um uh dry very 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 dry their football team is bad again (laughs) is their hockey team bad i don't remember i don't remember Eh. i don't follow hockey well speaking of places that are deserts arabia (laughs) i don't well done <laughs> it worked it yeah. might be our best one today which is not great but still you did the best <laughs> out of today so golf clap yeah uh, <laughs> I did there? there you go <laughs> golf clap from corn from scotland yeah saying that arabia is a bit of an oddball in this under normally certain victims help each other science helps domination and vice versa faith tells culture but arabia because of the way they're set up it's science and faith it's kind of a unique combo there. A good source of faith and science comes from their madrasas, which is the university replacement. Plus five science instead of plus four, and it's unlocked earlier at theology instead of having to wait until for education. So you can start that snowball a little faster. Completing the unique polysite building from your religion provides an extra 10% science in the city, which was built, which you add that to the extra from the madrasa, more snowballing also get plus one science from each foreign city converted to the religion so this is where the faith part really come kicks in because you could do what the ai does and spam missionaries and stuff out and start spreading it everywhere and there are also selections you can make building your religion where you're also going to enhance your science as well so you could build a totally science focused religion type and then be spreading that at the same time is there a religion building that produces science because there's one for like everything else I think it's the stupa. No, the stupa's amenities. It's, I believe that's the Watt. That is yes. Ah, that watt. makes sense. Yeah. So if you make that as your, your your unique holy building, so then you're adding even more science on top of the science that you're already getting the bonus from. And, you know, you, it's, you give us a way to combine the faith and the science together and snowball it a little bit. I mean, they are guaranteed the last religion, so it gives you a little bit of freedom there to produce generating the science first and do the religion later. Unless you want to pick up things like the Watt, because I think that's one that tends to go quickly. Yeah, that and uh, Jesuit education would be another belief you would probably want to get. Because then you could buy in, you could faith buy in some of your stuff in your districts, which would also, you know, help you snowball that faster. Yeah, and the last prophet is one of the abilities that has always frustrated me because the AI never actually plays Arabia and like recognizes that it has that ability. The AI always builds holy sites. Uh, as Arabia always builds holy sites first and gets that profit, even, even though you know they could just wait. And it's always like, oh come on. Watt being a, a science building makes sense because the literal translation of Watt is school. Yeah, yeah. If you're gonna pick one, that one definitely makes sense. But three, Sumeria. 
I mean, what she says is more famous for the militaristic approach they have to winning, but and for science, that's no different. Uh, more Ward cities, Hart, yeah. More cities means the more cities. science. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same point I made with the attack at the start of this list, basically. Uh, also, yeah, so they, at skip science. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, we're we're, we're <laughs> I'll get that in a second. Uh, the war course, war war course, war course. Anyway, being one of the best unit, well, he says the best, but. Uh, the unique unit in the game, you get a few of these out, you conquer a lot of your neighbors and city-states, and then you just let all the massive number of things, all the massive number of cities contribute to your science building once those become obsolete. War carts also get tribal villages from clearing barb camps, so you have a chance to score some extra science that way, or even Eurekas. And I, I assume that works even if ancient or tribal villages are disabled in the game settings, right? I don't know. I've never, yeah, I've never tried that. So I, I'd assume you'd still get that because that's the civ ability. So as long as barbarians are not disabled, you are, you know, pretty much guaranteed to be able to get at least a few of those. Huh. That might have to be for science at some point to see. And but and speaking of the ziggurats that Ken has pointed out, it's a very early source of science, and you can build them anywhere. They're not. This isn't a building that's limited to the campus. If you've got a, a vast flat desert area with no rivers around that you're not going to use for much else. Just spam ziggurats across it. One of the other things that I found about the, the ziggurat when I was playing as Samaria is that because it's a tile improvement that you work and not a district or a building, it means that you can control how much science you're outputting. So if you start to tech too fast and it, your tech is outpacing your production, you can, uh, unlike with uh, districts or buildings, you can actually rein it back a little bit and be like, all right, no, I don't need to go to the next era and then get more expensive units and then not be able to build the cheaper units because I don't have the production for it. You can actually, you know, just stop working those tiles and be like, I got to let my production catch up a bit first, which was very nice. I think Samario was the one that Sula used when he did the no specialty district deity space line. So yeah, they're pretty significant. Uh, Yeah, you can, you can skip campuses altogether and just build all the other things and just work ziggurats. How do you, it's obviously not optimal as a challenge game, but how do you do no specialist districts as a science win because you need a spaceport? They well, don't it's not count a, specialty a specialist district, district, is it? Yeah, but yeah, it's literally the most specialized district because <laughs> it's only for winning the game. I think There's the not specialist the game defined it though. Yeah, Same specialist with district is technically I think only the districts where you can assign a specialist to work in them. Ah. So aqueducts, entertainment complexes might not be. I'm not actually sure about those. So aqueducts, dams, entertainment complexes. I think aerodromes are not considered a specialty district. And, of course, spaceports. And, yeah, you kind of do need the spaceport to win the space victory. So right. it would kill the challenge if <laughs> you couldn't build on. I just thought it was an interesting concept because you're like completely ignoring something the game very much intended you to interact with a lot. Yeah, that's like the centerpiece of the whole game's design is the districts. Yeah. Apparently a specialty district is a district that is not constrained by population. And that means spaceports, aqueducts, and neighborhoods count. What? That's what it says on the Civ Wikia. That does not sound correct. That sounds kind of like the opposite of what we were talking about. What? Yeah. What? The only the only non-specialty districts. Did I say specialty districts? Yeah, you said specialty districts. Okay, the non-specialty districts. Okay. I got that wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Slightly backwards, but okay, that makes more sense now. The ones that do yeah. not require population 
to be built are the ones that are not specialty districts. Okay, so even if they don't produce great people points or allow you to assign a citizen to work as a specialist, it's still a specialist if it's constrained by population. Got it. So neighborhoods, aqueducts, dams, and spaceports. I think that covers all of them, right? Probably. Sounds like it. Uh, I'm not seeing anything that says that aerodromes are not, but I do not no aerodromes are constrained by population so yes they are Popu- uh, same with uh, entertainment complexes and water parks they are also constrained by population one thing that i always was unclear about is whether or not the city center counted as a specialty district or not it counts as a district that's all i know well you, you yeah, can't build a, a city. specialty district yeah yeah, uh, yeah but like, it, it, it kind of requires to... one population <laughs> yeah but how are you supposed to have a city without the city center well, you'd have a zero population city. Yeah, so, so that's not yeah. a city. So yeah. Just saying, I, I was never I was never clear on whether or not that counted. I don't know if it's ever relevant in the game mechanics, but I've like I said, I I never they never Isn't defined there it. Is there an error bonus for it? So like you could check that maybe. Uh, like building a city, do you do you get credit for building a specialty district towards your error bonus? And if you don't, then I would say it's not because the game doesn't think it is. That's as best as we're gonna get, I think. In that case, I would think it's not because I'm pretty sure that I've founded cities and not gotten that. Well, you had to have had the you had we would have had to have picked that though. I've picked it before. It yeah. Well. well Number two is not a lot of surprise because it's like this had to be on the list because Australia. Because that appeal and adjacency bonus, you can very easily get campuses that are on tiles with breathtaking appeal. And so then you're getting a plus six, maybe even plus seven adjacency. So sometimes in some cases, that's almost going to be like having a second city worth of boost or second city worth of a campus because that's such a high adjacency. And then you've got that thing that after liberating a city or getting declared war and you've got a hundred percent production for 10 turns. So if you get this, either you can build an army to go conquer more cities after that person, if you get declared on, or that just boosts what you're doing otherwise with building units and what have you. And then there's also, again, the spaceship projects, because at that point, somebody's probably, if they see you're going towards the space victory, especially if you were in a multiplayer game, you're definitely going to have somebody attack you, even though you're going to get that bonus. And also there will will definitely be AI city-states or other cities that could be liberated at that point. And unlike with Scotland, you can actually use this ability. (laughs) Because all those city-states that the AIs conquered in the first 20 or 30 turns of the game you can liberate them without a cast of spell eye and get this bonus. And emergencies are going to give you some free war declarations if you've happened to be doing a little too well and the AI wants to throw an emergency at you for some reason. And you get extra housing in the cities on our own coastal tiles, and that outback station means you're going to make those cities a lot taller. So science, 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 and more science, more population, and more science, not necessarily with that, not necessarily having to go to war to get it, but it doesn't hurt like in any other case. Just more cities full stop. But number one should be no surprise. It's Korea. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Or as they say in Japan, off course. Off course. Yes, Korea has gone off the course. Yeah, they have a 50% off campus with at least a plus four adjacency. They get a hill start bias, which also is kind of going to get you closer to mountains. You're going to have more of a spot to put the campus. So, they're, But they're also going to have plenty of production. Their governors give extra science. It's 3%, but it, which may not seem like a lot initially, but later on that 3% is, uh, you know, as it accumulates over time and the more governors you're using, you're going to have that 3 you're, It's like 3% each governor, if I remember right. So the more governors you use, the more percent you're getting. And suddenly you've got a bigger science boost. And their farms give extra food when they're adjacent to their uh, special campus district. 
and their minds give extra science in the same way. So you can put that campus out there, surround it with some farms and mines, and you're getting even more production and even more people to snowball that science even further. So basically, they're the best and nobody even comes close. Australia can. That's why they're number two. It's, 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 like, it's like a close one and two, but Korea is always going to be ahead because of the base of that campus. Because you, you, because while it's cheaper, the Australian campuses could have more adjacency bonus. Very true. And Australia, if you are getting those liberating cities, you're going to have plus a hundred percent production for large chunks of the game. If you're able to chain a bunch of city liberations together, so you let one runaway sieve steamroll over another sieve, and then just liberate their cities one by one every 10 turns and you can run that 100% production for a long time with Australia which means you're building all your libraries and universities and all that stuff a lot faster yeah you could even you could even get that war deck production and go well I've got an army to defend myself let me just go build some more campus things and stuff over here (laughs) right call in today in North America the number is 301-637- 7659. That's 301 637 Polly. In Europe, 44121 288 7659. That's 44121 288 Polly. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. You could, but why would you? Anyway, speaking of bad things... (sighs) Really? That's going to be your transition to the outro? (laughs) Well, because it's a bad thing that the show ended. That's true. That's Uh true. We should just go on forever! (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us on Polygast episode 337. Unfortunately, we do not go on forever in one day. Uh, there, There are limits to these things. Uh, so that'll be it for 337. I'm the main team. I was joined by Canis Albinus. Hopefully we'll have a guest next time. Makalua. I, I need to get caffeinated. No, not muted. And <laughs> and Mega Bears fan. Come on, just one more podcast. Record date, May 4th, 2019. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Sound Clips, copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright The Polycast at thepolycast.net.